Off the Bench is a podcast created by ASCLS that will discuss the scientific and not so scientific ideas in laboratory medicine. We are joined by members of ASCLS, fellow scientists, educators, and researchers, along with those interested in the profession. We share ideas and talk nerdy. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Off the Bench podcast, part two about interviewing. Justin, kick us off. Hi, everyone. As we're getting into the second part of this episode, one of the big questions that came up when we were discussing is what to wear. Do, especially now thinking about in the times where we are doing a lot of video interviews and phone interviews, things that are at a distance because of COVID-19, not just what I'm wearing, but also the setup of my video screen. Right now, as we're talking, I don't have any background up, but I will put up a background and I do make sure that the lighting and everything else is appropriate for the position I'm interviewing for. That is extremely different from what I did for my video interview. Um, in August, when I was interviewing for my newest position, I was actually in the midst of a climbing trip. And I was so thankful that um, we were in a place where video interviews became more commonplace because when they scheduled an interview with me, it was already kind of written in stone that it was going to be online. So, you know, I was in Wyoming climbing and I was just so glad that I could at that point rent a room, get out the computer and interview. So then when I interviewed, uh, I had nothing. I had my climbing gear, my climbing clothes. I had, you know, no, no makeup, none of the usual pizzazz that you kind of like to present yourself with. But what it did was I got on, I'm in a hotel room and I started with you won't believe why I'm, where I'm interviewing from. Let me tell you. And then our first part of the interview was me for five minutes telling them about where I'm at and what I'm doing and why I don't look as presentable as I normally want to. That's a reasonable excuse. And I think it talks a bit, it definitely touches on what we mentioned in the first part about showing personality and who you are and letting that show through in the interview to see about being a fit with the team. And it's, it's an icebreaker too. I think, I think when we come into an interview, especially as our first interviews out of school, we are so nervous for that interview. And now coming into it, I can be, if you start with an icebreaker, I think that really sets the tone for the rest of an interview. And I found that with myself, the rest of the interview then became a casual conversation rather than them sitting and giving me 20 questions and me trying to query for my answers. So think that's important. With more video conferences and video things online, I find myself wearing comfortable pants, but really nice shirts. So I tend to invest a bit more in like my shirts and I recycle out necklaces and things. But I, I find, I personally, I find doing that. And I've seen actually um, my, my uh, supervisors and specialists when they're interviewing for people, they'll still be fully dressed up because they're already somewhat dressed up for work. They're just more dressed up. So like, when one of my specialists, she was interviewing somebody, she came, she walked out to greet a student with, um, you know, just her, her uh, blouse on. But with, during the interview, she had her uh, blazer on as well to, like, get that more professional approach in the video interview. Got it. Thanks. Then the big part for me that I really want to make sure, you wore pants. Yes. You wore pants in the interview. Okay, because this is like, to me, this is the, the, the existential question about videos is, do I wear pants to the interview or not? Because... <laughs> And in my mind, if you're going to go, go all the way. Because at any interview that I go to, I want to, I get fully dressed up. I'm wearing a vest. I've got my blazer. I have a tie on, shoes, everything. My hair is done. My makeup's ready. I want to put everything forward. And because part of it is I just like getting dressed up like that. So it's fun for me. So again, showing a bit of personality uh, that I'm going to do that. But I was wondering if people put on pants and my thought is, yes, wear pants in the interview because it puts yourself fully in that space. Even if they can't see you on that side of the screen, it helps for me to feel like I'm in that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You dress for you, not for them. Have you guys mm -hmm. ever known anyone or interviewed anyone that wore scrubs to an interview? Yes. Thoughts? So... I think it works depending on where you're coming from. If you're coming from your rotations, if you're coming from another uh, site or something, mm. I think they'll understand. And they, they're like, okay, well, you know, she's coming from a professional location. She is prepared for a professional job. 
Yeah, and probably probably a better impression to come in in scrubs versus like, I don't know, your Jimmy Choo pink tracksuit, right? Yes. A little bit better. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes when we're in the interview, we get faced with certain questions that are challenging or difficult either because they're a sensitive topic or our relationship with the question is kind of a negative experience i'm of the idea that i don't want to bring up any negativity within an interview i'm curious to hear if this has been part of your experience and what you do to take that instance turn it into a story in which there's something constructive and positive to take away from that Oh, um, so one of the questions that I feel like gets asked pretty standard, at least when you're starting out, is um, tell me a time when you had to um, either deal with conflict or resolve a conflict or had a conflict with either a coworker, you know, a patient, a boss or anything, and what did you do to resolve it? And that, that already sets a pretty negative precedent. Um, I think when my... Uh, this comes back into what we talked about in part one about how comfortable you are and with the stories that you tell. So when I first started out, um, I would have never told the story, but for the job that I did get, because I was so relaxed in it by that point, the story I told, first of all, had nothing to do with lab, but second of all, it had to do with, um, I worked in a lingerie store, um, in uptown Minneapolis, and there was a gentleman that came in and I watched him. He was wearing really baggy pants. And I watched him over the course of 15, 20 minutes, take different female lingerie and just shove it down his pants, not in his pockets, in his pants. Ew. And I told this story to my future bosses. So, I mean, um, I'm um, very thankful that I got that job. But um, eventually um, we, at, he was trying to leave. And at that point I had to stop him. And that was the conflict conversation. And it was so awkward because I'm like, sir, I'm going to have to have you take out what you had put in your pants. And so then of course, instantly he becomes really defensive and he puts out his pockets and empties out his pockets. And he's like, what do you mean? Why are you accusing me of stealing? I didn't steal anything. And then that awkward moment of saying, sir, you put them in your pants. And then having this gentleman take out the items out of his pants, place them in my hand. Mind you, they were um, like in plastic wrap. So I saw the heat and the moisture coming from his body parts. And that- uh, Did you give that, those details in the interview? Sorry, what? Did you go into the details about yeah, the- Yeah, I did. I did. I did. I did. And I think here's, here's the thing it may have added a shock factor enough to where how did you resolve that conflict became a fleeting thought and was instead of like, oh my gosh, she had to ask somebody to remove items from their pants. And so um, so that's one way to deal with a negative is to tell a story weird enough to where they just forget what they were asking in the first place. Don't listen to my advice. That just happened to be a story <laughs> I had. <laughs> I, think there's, I think there's a lot less extreme ways to go about answering that question. <laughs> I feel like another, oh God, that's just, oh, that, that was, that's weird. Now you're just thinking Moisture, about it. It's just, mm, I, I can't, I'm trying to not think about it too hard. They were laughing, you guys. It worked. That's always good because that's, and I solved you know. the conflict without calling the police. So uh, once again, going back to um, being able to come up with examples that are outside of working in the lab, because as you're starting out, you may not have had lab experience, but you may have had other manager customer service experience, which is so much of what lab is, right? And so just figure out any weird, obscure thing that you ever did. And like adding to that, another like sort of negative question I feel like they like to ask, especially at first time interviews for newer grads, they always like to ask you, um, what are some negative traits about you? Like what are some positive traits or some negative traits, right? Negative characteristics. And I used to hate that question because I, I dig on myself a lot. So I was like, oh yeah, and this and this and my, and my husband was like, no, you can't, not, not like that. You have to do negative things that could be positive. I hear that all the time, that advice. What do you mean? Yeah, exactly. So like one of them is over obsessing with certain details. And that is a negative, but that's also potentially a positive. You could also say like, you know, I obsess over, I'm so detail oriented, sometimes I get caught up. But then you can also add, what are you doing to improve that negative 
aspect. Because if you can say, I'm actively working on it by doing X, Y, Z, then they're like, okay, so she is cognizant enough to realize that she has this negative trait, that she's trying to actively improve it. And, you know, maybe being too detail-oriented isn't too bad either, especially in a laboratory setting. My go-to, my go-to for that, like that's negative, but really a positive was I'm a perfectionist. Let me tell you how, <laughs> you know, um, I, I don't know that that's, uh, that's a strategy. What about you, Justin? Did you have a go-to negative? That's really positive. I don't have any negative traits about me. <gasps> I, believe it. I believe it. I only have things that I'm working on. There you go. I have there places for improvement. I have room for growth. So what I'm hearing from this and what I'm trying to do in this is I'm reframing it. So these aren't negative characteristics. It's just things I'm working on or places for improvement, places for growth. Similarly, another question that comes up is, why are you leaving this position? I'm not leaving this position. Why do I want to join your team? So a lot of it is, it's reframing the question and taking a look at this. And I remember in the most recently when I was interviewing, I had a hard time. Why do I, why would I want to leave my position? I'm, I'm happy where I am. Things are good for me, but I am looking for somewhere where I'm going to have a more aligned career trajectory with where the company's going. So it's not so much that why do I want to leave or instead, why do I want to join you? So I think that when we're in the interview, if you can see these kinds of questions coming that feel either a little bit like a trap or that just have this negativity tone. Is there a way to reframe it, get ahead of it, to make it work for you? I like that, especially reframing that question of why are you leaving? That is such a great spin on it. And being able, I think that's one thing that people should really try to hone in on, especially new grads trying to interview. Practice that. Practice reframing all your all these questions. Practice reframing your stories. Take bad things and make them good. Take good things, make them bad. If you're able to flex between the two, you'll be able to pull it out for any sort of situation. I think the important thing, like what you mentioned there as far as bad being good or good being bad, looking at that as a relative standpoint and not a fixed position. At no point, if you don't know something or you have this negative trait, as we're calling it, well, you're not a static being. You can learn. You're capable of being trained and taught and mentored. So these behaviors or traits that about you that you're recognizing can be learned and honed and these skills can be developed. Exactly. One of my most useful moments in my interviewing career was um, I was already a med tech in my lab and I applied for the first time to a team lead position and I didn't get it. And it's a position I wanted so bad from the moment I stepped foot in the lab. So I didn't get it. However, what my supervisor did was set me down and we had a meeting for one hour talking about why I didn't get it and what I could do to improve it. And the thing that stands out the most to me is she said, Galena, most often your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness. And the example that she gave me for me personally at the time is she said, you are very analytical, very logical. You take emotion out of everything, which makes you a great tech because you problem solve quickly. You don't let anything get to you. And, you know, I can have a patient screaming at you and it doesn't bother you. um, And you just keep going with what you're doing. You don't let it frazzle you. But the weakness of that is when your employees search for compassion, understanding for you to meet them on their level. You don't have that right now because you've never been called to work on it. So I call on you to have that something you work on. And so that was the most fantastic feedback. The greatest strength is often your greatest weakness. So be um, aware of that um, and and figure out um, how to improve on that and be okay with like people calling you out for it because I was completely blind to that, completely blind. And the um, wonderful human who got the job instead of me was the opposite. She had a hundred percent compassion. Well, um, she obviously very analytical, all of that, but she was very compassionate. And, and so I learned so much from that interaction. That makes a lot of sense. I really like that you mentioned the greatest strength being the greatest weakness, knowing that the, what we hold to be our strong truth is not oh not in itself complete. Yep, and and hopefully, um, for anyone that's listening, 
if you ever are going through an interview where they kind of tell you that or give you that feedback, they're also not just leaving you hanging with that. So the other thing my boss did is said, okay, knowing that and knowing that you want to be a leader, what can I do as a supervisor to prepare you for success so that next time you interview for this position, you will get it, which by the way, is exactly what happened. So hopefully they set you up in success in that way. And if they're not having that conversation, that you have the wherewithal and the trust in your supervisor to approach them and say, okay, what can we do? What kind of practice? What kind of projects can I be on that'll help build these strengths in me? Congratulations to you. (laughs) One of the things that I think was really crucial there is knowing that you had some mentorship or people above you to help you through these aspects. And you had some kind of model in front of you that you could work towards. And I think when I'm interviewing and I'm in the room, talking with people and getting to know them and getting to know me, I'm also looking to see if I have certain limitations or things that I'm working on, if the manager, the director, or something in the company shows that this is a value that they hold, then I'm also looking to make it that this is a place where I can be mentored and I can learn from others about this thing whatever it is that I'm working on. So knowing, especially if you're reaching into a new position or it's into the next step, either vertical or horizontal, look for, I'm looking for those people that I would look as either formal or informal mentors in the position. Not only that, but people that you can trust, especially as someone that's, you know, a new grad coming into a position. I think it's really important Um, that if you need help or if you're looking for more projects or if you're trying to build your career in a certain direction, that you trust your employer enough to be able to bring these concerns, ideas, bring that to them, and they won't just get shot down because I feel like they're in, I mean, and this happens in every career, it's really easy to get disenfranchised by bad bosses Um, where you are eager and excited, especially out of school. You're stoked. You're like ready for life. And there's nothing worse than somebody killing your enthusiasm. So it's really important to work with people around and work for um, that will instead try to propel you, like keep that enthusiasm going, which is why it's taken me, uh, you know, a really long time to um, ever leave my first employer. So manager can make or break a position. Yeah, for sure. And if you if you're working for someone who you feel like, you know, you may not trust right away, find someone else in that organization structure that you do trust or you can have a rapport with. And they can also help you sort of help guide you. It depends on where you are. Like for me, I think I I wasn't the most I had some slight issues with my supervisor on one shift, but I was really good for I was able to have a really good rapport with a supervisor on a different shift. So at least I st- felt like I still had someone to trust and that I could go to for help and if something happened. If you have that rapport with somebody, always use that. And it's, again, back to the first episode, it's who you know and who you're comfortable with as well. And also know what you're worth because yes, you may be starting out and yes, you may not have the years of experience, but there's so much potential in you um, to become a great asset to the company. Um, and you have, you are your own advocate, your own number one advocate. So if you're like, you know, having issues or you're not getting fulfilled in a position, like no one is going to try to um, fix that, but you, it all starts with you. So. Glina, you moved into something I wanted to ask about and talking about difficult conversations I wanted to ask you all on how you talk about compensation and pay. I can tell you how not to do it. Everybody goes, (laughs) when that comes up. I can tell you exactly how not to do it. Basically, don't do what Sophia did. Because Sophia did this twice. Um, Literally, so when I first graduated, I got my phone call saying, hey, we want to offer you this position. I was Before she even finished, I was like, yes, I'll take it. And it's like, hold on, child. Looking back, it's like, hold on, child. <laughs> Slow your horses. Um, later on, um, when I was being offered the official position change to um, to a, a weekend supervisor, the senior lead tech position, um, that one did include a pay raise. And with that, they called and said, hey, we have this raise. And I was like, yeah, sure. And the HR lady very kindly told me, she was like, no, 
this is what they're offering you, you are okay to say no, and I can go back and argue more. Basically, I clammed. I I just froze, and I was like, yeah, just do, yeah, sure. And I was, I, it was so bad. It, it actually ended up being back and forth three times. It sounds it's, like you had an advocate on your side. I did, very, luckily, very much. Um, but, but yeah, don't do what I did. Justin, what do you think are your bargaining powers, though, as you're straight coming out of school, right? I think it's easy to talk about it um, when we're looking up for a promotion or where we're at now years later, right? We know our worth. um, We know what we're looking for. We're so self-actualized that I can say, nope, you're going to give me $5,000 a year more. But as a new student, do you have that control? Not as much. It depends on other circumstances in your life, whether you have a family, where you live, uh, the commute, if you're living farther away from where the jobs are. These are things that need to be incorporated into what you consider to be your compensation. Um, As a student coming out, you don't have the years of experience under your belt to negotiate a stronger wage. You, if anything, you need to I would if anything, for a student, there's a creativity involved of looking at other work experiences, other projects that we have done that show some kind of skill training. If anything, a lot of it is selling your potential. And as a new as a new graduate, it's well known that that's what we're working with is a blossoming flower. And so if anything, it's trying to sell what that flower is going to blossom into. Mm-hmm. I think with that, you can also do your homework. And that's something that I personally should have done as a student. Um, Only reason why I knew what I was getting was fair is because I talked to other student employees who were being hired at the exact same time, and we all got the same thing. I think that part of that is also because we all uh, applied for a state hospital position, which all of that is public record. So being able to, I say, if you're able to look up a base starting salary for your area, that really helps out. Because I actually had a friend who also uh, she was not a student employee. She just went into a different location position for a laboratory job. She ended up getting paid $4 less than I did, like under $20 as a starting out for a student, which, yeah, it was under $20 for a student. And her raise brought her closer to $20. You know, if 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 they were able to, to have that research from, hey, well, the state lab pays this. You're a private institution. What do you do to match this? If, this, if we're knowing that the state government's doing this, if you're able to get that research, I would say definitely do it and ask them, how are you making sure that your market is fair to a new person? Because you're offering me X amount, someone else is offering X amount with these benefits. Are your benefits at least adding up to make up for that loss in money or something? Like, I think it's totally fair to ask that. Sophia, and I think that that um, brings up so two ways you can go about this, the way you're talking about it, do your research. So whether you're going on Indeed or just Googling, like what's the average salary for my state for this job, right? The other way to do it, um, which is the way I happen to do it, I did no research on it, but in the two and a half months before I got my first job, I was interviewing for a lot of positions. I interviewed for anything that was coming up on, you know, Indeed, LinkedIn, whatever was happening. And so by getting multiple offers, um, I kind of got a range. So my first job that I ever got an offer for offered me under $20 as well for an overnight position, mind you. And so then when the, the position that I took was like heck of a lot better, then, you know, I didn't have bargaining power because I'm a new hire, but I knew that what they were offering me was really good because I had all these other, in the end, all these other positions that I interviewed and asked what the salary range was, what the starting salary was. So two ways to go about it, you know, either A, Google it, or B, interview for enough jobs to where you can gauge what is right for a first time starting position. Actually, you kind of reminded me with the night shift thing. Um, also, if you can ask them what the shift diffs are, if you have if, mm-hmm. if a hospital has shift differential, which a lot of them do, ask mm-hmm. because once you do that evening shift, those midnight hours are not looking too bad. I promise you that twenty percent <laughs> extra, fifteen percent extra. Oh, that adds up fast. You will want that job after that. 
Well, and then depending on, um, I was interviewing for a job in Alaska and not only did they have a shift differential, they also, you were on call. So you had an on-call differential. And then on top of that, you had a geographic, like in not inconvenience, that's not what it was called, but it was like a geographic differential for the fact that you were moving so far remote, um, that there was a differential on or a bonus on top of that. So that was, you know, mind you years ago. And, um, one position, and it was already offering around a hundred thousand dollars for first time tech to relocate to Alaska. And like, I mean, granted it was a very remote location and, but with all the differentials and the bonuses, that was huge. If you're looking for a reference point in your research on where to find numbers for what would be an estimated salary range in your area, whether it be laboratory technician or laboratory scientist, um, either two-year or four-year, the two places I would look are the ASCP wage survey. They do it every two years. I think they're still working on 2019's data, but 2017 is available. Similarly, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, BLS.gov, also has numbers there. Now, the one thing that I, the caveat I would bring into BLS, ASCP is going to be very granular. They, This is our industry. They're the Society for Pathology and Lab Sciences, so it gets really granular. Uh, with BLS, it tends to be more of an aggregate. So if you're a technologist or a scientist and you're looking at the numbers and they seem awfully low, uh, consider that it also does include technicians. And if you're a technician and the numbers look high, vice versa. So these are two places in which we're, you can go and take a look at not just where the jobs are, but what the average salary is for that area. The SIF differential for being in, say, more remote locations is interesting. I have not heard of that. I think we're going to start to see more and more of those things, or it would be something that should be strongly considered as far as incentivizing to meeting um, meeting the needs of our rural patients and people in, that have experienced barriers to care due to some geographical reason. Are you finding, I feel like, you know, in the last year since COVID came around too, a lot of positions are offering bonuses if you're working in a COVID laboratory now. Um, so, so I hear. Hazard, yeah, there's hazard pay that's now involved. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so there's a lot of things, a lot of benefits that might be on top of what your regular pay is. Something else I would consider in, Sophia, you mentioned this a bit on looking at, say, private versus public uh, sphere and where the position lies and what the pay or the dollar amount might be and how that's it's compensated in either direction. In looking for a job and asking for compensation, don't just focus on the dollar per hour number. You know, for me in California, I'm going to get taxed on that income. So if there's an opportunity for me to put that into benefits in a place that might actually work out better for me. So it depends on what you need and what you're looking for. If health insurance and health benefits are really important to you, then you need to factor that into what your compensation package might be. If you're a young and healthy individual and don't have a lot of chronic care, God bless you and you must be young, coming right out of school then. And so you may not have to worry about this as much or it's not as much of an important factor in deciding what's an appropriate compensation package for you. Things like tuition reimbursement are also another big one. Like that's important for me as I'm currently in school and looking to finish my master's. For me, one of the benefits I wanted to look at was actually um, the uh, uh, PTO hours you would gain. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't take much time off, but I like knowing that it's there and I like having the option to sell back at a slight discount. Like, you know, like I think it's like 80% or 90% uh, pre-COVID. So I like knowing that I can gain that and that's actually... One of the reasons why I didn't apply for a different location is because I believe their um, PTO accrual rate was like maybe eight hours. At the time, UNC was offering 11.5. That's huge. And I was like, I will take that. My big one uh, was how many weekends you had to work. So um, I, um, one of the locations that I interviewed for and did my clinical rotation as, as when you're starting out, you had to work every other weekend, whereas the job that I ended up taking was every fifth. No-brainer. To every other versus every fifth, you know, you know, you think about most of us or a lot of us when we're graduating from this degree, we're in our 20s and how precious those weekend hours are. Or if you're a parent and how precious your weekend hours are with your kids, that's huge. 
if there is a position that has weekends, I have worked weekends in where, you know, I had a Wednesday or a Thursday off and I do consider it's a change from the conventional nine to five Monday through Friday kind of work schedule. And I'm interested to see in a post-COVID world how this might get disrupted or change, especially with flexible work arrangements. So as we're going into that, if there is an opportunity that it's an off shift or if it's uh, on a weekend, I, I, I hesitate to limit limit job opportunities because those things might exist. I found that having a Wednesday off was wonderful. I could go to doctor's <laughs> appointments. I could go to the Trader Joe's and there's fewer people just like night shift. It's great. That's actually one, one big reason why I actually applied for my current position, the weekend supervisory position, because for the longest when the position was open, I hadn't applied. I was not going to apply. I was saying to myself, well, you know, my husband works Monday through Friday. I want to be able to you know, have a same schedule as him. That's why I left evening shift for day shift because I want to have a similar schedule. But then we kept talking and talking about it. And we're like, you know, we're in our 20s. We don't have kids. We can figure this out. If I worked, so my current schedule is Thursday through Sunday. I have Monday through Wednesday off. That's a three-day weekend, basically. And what are weekends but really days off at this point? Especially with COVID, they're just days you're not at work. Yeah. Mine are now during weekdays, which is which means I can go to doctor's appointments with no problem. I can go to the grocery store and there's nobody there except during busy hours. But it's fantastic. And I'm so glad I took that opportunity. Like, if I had tried to convince myself of this maybe when I first started, I think I would have been a little bit more hesitant because I would want something that matched other people's schedules. Currently, oh, give me weird hours. I will take it. <laughs> Things that other things that I would convince myself of early on is to take that 401k and take the benefits in which they allow you to invest. When we're students, we don't necessarily think about these things. And it's easy to just be like, nah, give me the money. Um, I really strongly encourage putting away 10% of whatever you earn into the 401k package that is presented, or it may be a 4013B, depends on the organization, if they're profit, if they're a for-profit or not-for-profit. Either way, take advantage of that. It's money that gets put away, and it's just one of those investment things that your later version of yourself is going to be very thankful. For sure. For sure. So, so far, we kind of discussed the leveraging power that you have then versus now about pay. Um, we talked about those difficult questions and how to address them. Now my question for you guys is, uh, interview is done. You have left the room. What now? Do you sit around and wait? One of the first things on my to-do list following an interview is to send a thank you. They've given you their time and took the time to get it to know you. And I think it's worth either a whether you get the position or not, it's worth showing the appreciation that someone took the time out of their day to recognize you. Definitely thank them because Justin's right. They took the time out of their busy day to come and interview you, which means they had to shuffle and rearrange everything to make sure they could come and interview you because they thought that you would be a good potential for their team. In addition, I'm also a fan of very direct conversation and communication. So if you want this position, say that in the email. Don't let it to be assumed just because you were there, you know, anything else. If you really want this, if you're excited, say that. Let them know that this is what you want. To add to that, um, I would say that the thank you for me contains two parts. A, um, I want to recap the highlights of the interview, like what to what I enjoyed about them and hearing about the organization. And then my second paragraph to your point, Justin is saying, Hey, I really want to work here. And this is why I think I would be a good fit. So it's twofold. You acknowledge that you heard them and you you're aware of um, what they're looking for. And then saying, this is why I'm good for it. I do have one quick question about during the interview. What do you guys do with your hands? Because I know that's a problem that I have. Really? I purposely bring a legal pad to like scribble. I think that's a great thing. That's not an issue at all. Because I, I personally find an issue because if I don't hold on to something, my hands are flying in every other direction. I might smack a book off the shelf. <laughs> yeah, I'm from New Jersey. I talk with my hands. So I will either be very conscious 
of where I put them and either deliberately using them as part of my body language and communication. Though if it's a web interview, I'm trying to, I'm downplaying any body language. Uh, it just shows up too big on screen and it can be very distracting. I like what you mentioned, Sophia, about bringing a pen and paper or something else that gives you something tangible to anchor. It sounds like what you're doing is using a totem to curve any sort of anxiety or just keep yourself grounded, these kinds of things. Uh, I mean, it looks good no matter what, that you're prepared and you're ready to take notes, which I think is a fantastic idea regardless. But if there is something that can help for feeling grounded to feel like you're in control and present, whether and maybe you want to do it at the table, something small, that is helpful in a way. If whatever little bit that you need in order to feel like you're in control for where you need to be in that interview. I purposely bring a notepad with me to every interview because, um, and I'll actually ask them before we even start interview, I say, do you mind if I take notes? Um, because I think it shows that you are attentive and you're actively listening because so often they're asking you questions and I'm so busy trying once again to query a response um, that I might, I might miss something that I want to bring up later. So I have that pen and paper in front of me because I'm actively writing follow-up questions or taking notes because often they give you details about the position and what it's going to entail. So I think that's a really wonderful feedback uh, or um, a habit to have in an interview. I have a, I have a random question. Um, have you guys ever been in an interview where they have given you a quiz on like med tech type stuff? Like, you know, your patient, your urinalysis dipstick is showing that you have leukocyte esterase and nitride positive. What do you do? Have you ever had that? I've got quizzed for a, a quick dilution. They said, uh, how, how do you make a one to nine? I've also been asked the question, what do you do if we go into a new lot of reagent, but it hasn't been pre-calibrated, no paperwork's been done, and you have running patients on it before, you haven't done any sort of checks to make sure it's good. What do you do then? And I find with questions like that, they're really just trying to gauge your thought process. So I don't, I, I, the first time I was asked that question, I kind of thought in my head before I said the response, which made it seem really awkward and silent. So I now have the tendency to think out loud. And I was like, okay, so based off that, we have this procedure for these, um, for these reagents that we just switch into, and this is what we do there. So we should take that idea and put that here and go through all these steps. And that's what they want to hear. They're trying to see how, how do you think about these problems? And currently, um, they're currently interviewing for other people. And sometimes they'll also ask him, okay, well, on your resume, it says here you have hematology experience. Let me give you some, some uh, uh, hypothetical uh, printouts. What do you do with these things? What, what is your thought process on that? Like, I want to see how you think and how you go through the work to see more than is your personality a good fit, but also is your thought process and your work habit a good fit as well? Many of the questions that I had that were testing any sort of technical competency were more like what Sophia mentioned of not necessarily, it's okay, right or wrong isn't the goal here. It's What's your thought process? How do you get from point A to point B? And I remember when, because I had been quizzed on AML and dysplastic slides, and that would made me sweat in an interview that I was trying to read these things. But what I, and where, what was really helpful for me was that when the manager brought it up and said, it's not about right or wrong. I don't expect you to know this. This is, this was a very difficult case. I just want to know what you're thinking and how you come to your conclusion. Uh, um, one of my interviews was actually the opposite guys. They handed me a paper with a quiz on it and it was, gosh, I want to say like five to seven questions. And it was just actual straight up knowledge-based questions for every department that I would work. So there was a blood bank, a chem, a heme, heme and a UA question. And those were the questions that were asked, like, what are you going to do with this dipstick that is, or what does it mean if a dipstick comes out leukocyte positive and, um, esterase positive and nitrate positive. Right. And that was horrifying. I wasn't prepared. Like I wish that the human resources person would have told me that there might've been a quiz. So, you know, you're so busy trying to think about these examples and like, um, you know, uh, talk about conflict, uh, what are your strengths and weaknesses that I totally was not in a mindset to take a quiz in front of the three panel interview that were like, take your time. And they watched me take this quiz and it was 
terrifying, you guys. So um, that might happen to you. That's nerve wracking. That's awful. I'm sorry to hear that. That's That's something else to consider. Also, as an interviewee, what is the interview process? As you start to do more interviews with different groups or different Mm -hmm. people, you start to see how their interview process and what you like or don't like. I have turned down positions in uh, because the interview process, I just wasn't. If this is what this is, then I don't want to know what comes after. <laughs> and other, and likewise, at the same time, where it was the interview process that sold it for me. I'm like, I have never been treated like this. Where the questions you asked me made me feel so seen. I need to move forward. So that's that is where that is absolutely something to consider is the interview process and how that looks and how you felt being in that interview process. The other thing too that I have noticed as far as interview process that's changed for me over time as I move into more customer service related or sales and um, sales related positions is that fewer of the questions are looking at technical competency and ask me more about my emotional literacy and framing situations of the customer calls and they are screaming that the assay doesn't work right, that that the test sucks, that X, Y, and Z, that why it's going wrong. How do we handle this? And the answer actually is something that they were doing very simple, uh, not following the package insert. These are scenarios that are very real, but we need to approach them with care and compassion. And so a lot more of the questions that I find aren't asking me, do you know how to do a method validation and run a correlation? My resume and some of my experience can show that I know how to do data analysis, but the questions then become, how do I handle this situation that can be very touchy when it's a very important customer? And to add to that, um, even if you are getting a pretty technical question or like a high level synthesis question, I think that it won't hurt you if the answer is look at the procedure or if similarly, they're asking like a question of, you know, a situation where um, uh, it's not a black or white answer and it's like a gray area answer. It's never wrong to say. I'm going to talk to my leader or I'm going to talk to somebody that might know the answer. And I think that's really important. They're not expecting you to know everything because you don't. (laughs) It's knowing, knowing your resources. Knowing your resources and them also knowing that you will be able, you're willing to come and ask questions when questions arise rather than just trying to muddle through it. This is important of learning to say, learning that I don't know is okay. And I'm telling this to myself from about 10 years ago. It is okay. It's okay to say, I don't know. It is not a reflection on a lack of ability or, you know, an incompetency. It's an awareness of your limitation. And Sophia, I really like what you mentioned in Galena too, of even if you don't know, you know where to look. So I, it was something that was really helpful for me as I started moving into field applications and knowing that I was going to be working with managers and directors and uh, pathologists that have more years of experience than I've been alive is that they don't care if you don't know, but they need to know that you care. And I think what you have both shown is that I don't know is not this beginning and end point there, that you are willing to take that and move farther. And that's what it's important. So I wonder, you know, we clearly have this very in-depth view of the interviewing process over our careers. Um, Would you say that in your, even though you're super happy with your job, are you applying for others? I think I, I think I like to see what's out there. I'm, I will admit I have not interviewed except for within my position, within my uh, area but I I will look at other positions. I am very happy where I am, but it's always good to look and see what's out there because it's good to know what other opportunities there might be. And it's good for growth because growth is extremely important. You know, like Justin said in the in um the earlier this episode, I forgot which episode it was. Earlier this episode, you're not static. You're constantly growing. You're constantly moving. And it's good for that. And you never know if you do interview elsewhere, which you really should. You should get the practice. My husband's in tech and they practice a lot as in it's almost expected for tech people to be constantly interviewing on the side with their actual job. Not that they're actually going to leave, but they're just practicing, keeping their skills sharp and knowing, knowing what other companies are looking for. That way you can then build those skills and say, I also have these things that other places are looking for. 
And you're basically setting yourself up for success all around, no matter where you go. Um, I stay open to interviewing, even in while I'm steady and stable in a position. I want to keep my skills up there. I want to be open to opportunities and just to know, you know, what I'm worth, where my skills lie. And if not for any other reason, just sometimes you go on an interview and it reminds you of how good you have it. And it sounds like, Sophia, this has been some bit of your experience, too. You know, you can go on interviews and find that you actually really like where you're at. And sometimes we just need that outside perspective of seeing what's out there. And it helps us to not get stuck in this idea or one set of idea while we're clocking in and out to one particular place to take a moment to step outside of that and see what else is out there. It can help to reinforce the reasons for why we are where we stay we are. And to wrap that point up, interviewing is a perishable skill. So keep it up, you guys. You got to keep doing it. I would say I interview about once a year, not because I'm looking. I might be exactly very happy where I'm at, because, but I don't want to, um, I don't want those jitters and those nerves to come back. So do it. If you interview with a team and you are genuinely interested, maybe now is not the time, but you may also be establishing a relationship for the future. So consider that in mind. This happened to me when I was moving to Binding Site. I had just started with Stago and I had gotten a message from Binding Site asking if I was interested in an FAS role or field applications. I declined because I was happily set up into a new position, getting started with things there. But three years down the road, changes had happened. Life goes in different ways and we found ourselves reconnecting. So even though there was a bit of an interviewing process that happened early on, it didn't maybe it maybe didn't manifest right then and there, but things come back around and we are in a small industry with those of us in the laboratory. So there's a good chance that some of the names you see are going to come up again, maybe not within that institution, but somewhere else. So it helps. These are really you're just putting in an investment into relationships in the future. So I don't say go on every interview and take up people's time to just go and say hello and introduce yourself. But for those positions that you are genuinely interested in, you can go, if you don't move forward with that, you are still investing in a relationship. And Justin, an amazing point is the longer you are in this community, the smaller it becomes because it is such a tight knit community and you know, someone from across in a different organization may somehow know your name. I mean, yeah, starting a podcast, that's a good way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> everyone knows everyone. I think one yeah. time I posted on Facebook of someone, I saw a Facebook post in one of those big giant groups saying, I'm looking for a job. And I'm like, hey, we've got jobs here. And then I got a message later saying, oh, yeah, they actually interviewed here before. I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool you know and so they actually already had like a vague idea of that person and word travels fast you know you want to make sure on top of like making good relations you also want to leave a good impression like be present for that interview be be present for that job because if you don't you never know what's going to be spread around because stories travel names yep. travel I'm going to jive off what Sophia said about impressions. As we're closing up episode two and finishing up what happened in the interview room, when getting ready and assuming you just got the position, things are moving forward, one of the things that I really encourage is leaving a good impression from what the position that you're leaving. I was always told at a young age that whenever you leave a job, if you're given the two weeks, be there, be present 100%. And recently, having been on the receiving end of seeing how that can manifest when someone doesn't, it hurts. It hurts my impression of the person as they're leaving because it is the very last note to that song, that melody that, that melody that they've been playing for however long that they've been in that laboratory. That's, that final note is what people are going to rest on and remember you by. So when moving from one position to another, be present the whole way through. And especially if you're in a position of leadership of any kind, be sure to do the knowledge sharing and set up that team to be okay for when you leave, sharing your notes, training others to make it, because that is also part of leaving your legacy. The Elaborate podcast talks about this a lot of leaving your legacy and what do you want that to be. So consider that in the last, while you're exiting, do not just check out, be there a hundred percent. All right. So in today's episode, we learned about 
how to remain present in your interview, how to remain present when you are exiting your job. What else did we learn, Justin? Talked a bit about compensation and how to negotiate some of the things for there, where to find information to negotiate your pay. Well, how about you, Sophia? What else did we learn? We also learned uh, knowing what you're worth and, you know, fighting, being your own advocate, fighting for yourself. And any story can be made into a relevant story, even if it is having to ask a gentleman to take out lingerie out of their pants. <laughs> and then a story can be told in a positive light. It's all you are in the control of how it gets delivered. So any negative story such as that can also be turned into something positive. You are in control of that narrative. Or at the very least funny. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Should we should we name the uh, second part of this title? Telling a man to take lingerie off his pants. <laughs> Put it in the caption for sure. <laughs> it's going to be our higher listen, highest listened to episode. I know. Yes, yes. I would fast forward just to that part. Yep. Oh my goodness. I'm just thankful that I got that job. So thank you to my my supervisors and managers back in the day. Uh. So if you guys want to um, talk to us and and ask us more things or get us to talk about other things, we, most of us, have social media handles. And I say most of us. Um, you can find me on Twitter at warbler underscore works or on Instagram at warbler dot works. Justin, I think you have one. I'm on Twitter as flying lab rat. And Galena. Still doesn't have any social media handles or hashtags or anything like that but you can listen to this podcast on ascls.org slash off the bench uh you know this is where we store everything or anywhere that there's podcasts so i'll promote our podcast not myself and actually if you subscribe to our podcast and we reach 150 subscribers we are going to make galena make a twitter handle and you guys can bombard her with tweets and see how that goes show her lots of love yes What's What's a tweet? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, dear. <laughs> so she doesn't know about the brilliance of tweetorials. This is why we need to get her on Twitter. So yeah. please subscribe, share, and let people know about the Off the Bench podcast. Until next time. Yeah. Until next time, everyone. Bye. Bye.